Welcome to Crime Spot, your podcast on organized crime. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Crime Spot. My name is Esther, and every month, as you know, Felix and I explore another topic of organized crime and how it intersects with our lives and societies. Hi there, and thanks for tuning in again. Today will be a really interesting, but at the same time, pretty tough episode. Yeah, because um, today we're going to be talking about tra human trafficking and forced prostitution. And to do so, we've chosen to look at a specific case study that involves victims of human trafficking of Nigerian nationality. But before we go into detail about this, we were hoping to look at human trafficking at a global stage. Yeah, and here one of the major reports to refer to is the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crimes Global Report on Trafficking in Persons. We will also link that in the show notes for you. And the latest is the 2020 edition and the reports include some staggering numbers. In 2018 or more recent, roughly 50,000 um, number of detected victims of human trafficking were reported at a global level. And I mean, obviously, this figure is likely to be much higher in the sense that many victims are left uncounted due to countries underreporting or simply not being aware of their existence. Um, that's the very nature, right, of human trafficking, that it's an underground economy. But it is estimated that roughly seven out of 10 victims are females, and often these are members of the most vulnerable groups of population that are marginalized from society and living in extremely precarious situations. What is particularly worrying today is that UNOGC has observed an increase in girls being trafficked over women. Um, and also, Felix, I just wanted to specify that it's really important to distinguish sex from human trafficking, because while sex trafficking is a form of human trafficking, not all human trafficking is sex trafficking, right? And here, when I talk about 50,000, that refers to the total number of human trafficking. Okay, so it doesn't mean that uh, 50,000 are being trafficked for, for sex work in that sense. And yeah, what you, you say is like um, with the victims often being the most marginalized is especially worrying during a pandemic because obviously COVID-19 has exacerbated the issue and many of those that are trafficked and are targeted for trafficking are the ones in desperate need of employment and hence this economic downturn in many countries make them much more easier targets. Absolutely. I think actually that economic precarity or um, rather economic need is the most common vulnerability that is exploited by traffickers. Um, and it refers to about roughly half of all the reported cases. So um, we said before that not all of those 50,000 are victims of sex trafficking. So how big is the share of sex trafficking in those cases? According to this UNODC report, about half of them, half of the reported cases were cases of sex trafficking. And then the next largest category with 38% was trafficking for the purpose of forced labor. Yeah. And one thing that became apparent when we started our research on this topic is just how how complex of an issue sex trafficking is and in order to take it apart and to set shed some uh some lights on the different elements of the phenomenon we decided to focus on one case and that is the case of nigeria as a reminder nigeria situated in west africa and with over 200 million inhabitants is the most populous country 
of the continent. And sadly, Nigeria has a history of sex trafficking in which young girls, especially from the Edo state, are being targeted. Indeed, there have been numerous cases of victims of human trafficking that have been recruited in the state of Edo. And often these are women who are promised jobs and a better life in Europe and who are therefore tricked into undertaking a long and perilous journey to be smuggled into Europe. So there are many things here um, that we will be reiterating during the podcast, but it's really important um, to understand that from the start, they're in a precarious situation because they are being smuggled and therefore many of them arrive in Europe undocumented. That means that once they arrive on European soil, soil pardon, these women um, are then forced to work the streets and they're often told that they need to pay back uh, a very inflated debt to their traffickers. And what is very particular about this case study, I would say, is two main things. It's that first, once the women are in Europe, they seem to be controlled by so-called madams. And often these madams are former victims of sex trafficking themselves, and they have risen through the ranks within the organization. And second, it's that these victims feel that they are unable to escape from their plight in Europe because they are bound by an alleged voodoo spell. But um, where we will be discussing that later on. Yeah, exactly. And today we look at the case of Susan, who's a Nigerian woman who was trafficked to Italy and who managed actually to escape and to bring her traffickers to justice. In fact, in 2020, The Guardian published Susan's story and we had the privilege of talking to the article's author, Ottavia Spaggiari. Yeah, and Ottavia is a journalist specializing in social innovation, human rights, and social justice issues. She has reported from several European countries, but also from Sub-Saharan Africa and the US. And currently, she works as an investigative fellow at Columbia, at Columbia pardon, Journalism School's Global Migration Project. She has written for a number of eminent newspapers, including CNN, The New Yorker, and The Guardian. And in May 2019, Ottavia published her first novel in Italian, and we're absolutely delighted to have her here with us today. Ottavia, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So in August last year, you wrote a piece and published it in The Guardian about a young woman from Nigeria that was trafficked to Europe to work as a prostitute. And the story is pretty remarkable because she eventually managed to escape and to bring justice to some of her traffickers. But her fate is not an individual one, but is shared by many other girls and women. So maybe you could explain a bit on how you actually came across that story. How did you meet Susan? So um, I was doing a fellowship at Columbia Journalism School. Um, it's called the Global Migration Fellowship. And I was looking for a story about human trafficking. Um, I have been working on human trafficking for a few years now, and I got in touch with this um, aid worker who works in um, Rome um, and who has been working on human trafficking for a huge uh, amount of time for the last 20 years, and she has incredible experience. And she told me a different story that I wanted to make, uh, that I wanted to report on. But back then, the... It was another story of a survivor who had reported um, her trafficker to the authorities. But the, the investigation was still ongoing and the survivor 
got cold feet. Um, so I ended up not doing that story. At the same time, Francesca, who um, became one of my sources for this other story that was eventually published in The Guardian, uh, she mentioned the fact uh, that she had recently held another um, human trafficking survivor um, escape. And more specifically, she had held, uh, helped them, helped her uh, bring um, justice, uh, her trafficker to justice. So she had managed to escape her trafficker and she had managed to find a lawyer and uh, get help and report her trafficker to the authorities. And in the end, her trafficker went on trial and together with other uh, other traffickers, she uh, was eventually prosecuted and she was sentenced to, I think it was 45 years um, in jail, uh, which was an unprecedented um, sentence for human traffickers uh, in Italy. And so I decided to focus on this story and that's how I came a lot, you know, like I learned about it. No, and it's really a remarkable story of resilience in particular, because it takes such a long time to even be able to to hope and to bring um, before justice these traffickers. Um, but if we focus a little bit more on how this trafficking happens, because it's her story is unfortunately one of one of many, and there are a high number of Nigerian women and girls that have been trafficked in particular. Um, and so I, I was wondering why. Why is it that Nigerian girls and women have been particularly mm -hmm. um, targeted and victims of this trafficking? And from what I understand from reading your your piece and some of the additional um, pieces that have been written about it, is that in particular they come from one state yes. in, in Nigeria. How, how, why, I guess, is the question. Yes, um, that's such a good question. Uh, and there are several theories uh, about this, if you look at um, the academic papers on it. So some scholars trace the origin of human trafficking from Nigeria to Italy back to the 1970s, uh, right after uh, the civil war um, over uh, Biafra's independence. Uh, so right after the war, Nigeria was dealing with the consequences of a tremendous conflict that had left uh, over 1 million people dead and thousands of uh, people displaced. So at that point, Italian companies became involved in post-war reconstruction. Particularly, they became involved in what was then named uh, Bandel State, uh, which today is the Edo state in southern uh, Nigeria. And, you know, like the Italian government and especially Italian companies became um, involved in uh, the reconstruction efforts uh, and Italian men entered um, Nigerian society. Um, they, according to some scholars, they contributed to um, the creation and the flourishing of uh, uh, prostitution business and but they also you know met uh, Nigerian women and they married them and so you had 
Nigerian women who um, actually moved to Italy. Um, some of them uh, began um, trading with um, Nigeria. There, there was this kind of uh, connection uh, that was established between Nigeria, especially, you know, like the other state and Italy. And according to some scholars, uh, in the 1980s, uh, right after the a big drop um, in oil prices that um, Nigeria faced, and that pushed the country into a further uh, crisis and to, and into further, you know, poverty. Um, a lot of women that had emigrated to Italy or that had, you know, relocated to Italy because they had married Italian men needed to send money back home. And so you had some women who were already working as prostitutes um, that uh, began in Italy, that began bringing to Italy younger women. And then you also had women that were maybe working in, you know, uh, in the tomato picking industry uh, in Italy that realized that prostitution was more lucrative. And they started to bring to Italy younger Nigerian women. So that is how, according to experts, uh, the trafficking industry really started. And that is also how, you know, it kind of created, I mean, a cycle of exploitation where traffickers and victims are both females and where victims very often become traffickers. There's a lot lot to unpack there. And I just wanted to, the last point that you mentioned about sort of female victims becoming themselves the traffickers yeah. or the aggressors. So this is like the, the first generation of women who went there is what now we know as the madams, correct? Um, yes. I mean, it's really interesting because you can look at it. And again, I researched this and this is what I found looking at different papers, um, mainly from Nigerian scholars. And... Well, back then, uh, it was the early 80s. So you'd say that a lot of those women, that first generation of traffickers, might have retired by now. So a lot of women, you know, became uh, the probably the first generation back then. It was a little bit easier. Uh, some of them got uh, um, the Italian citizenship. Um, and others decided to retire maybe and they moved back to Nigeria. So I would say that uh, a lot of the the madams, because that's how they're called, um, the female traffickers that, that you see now are probably a lot younger because <laughs> uh, it, it was 40 years ago. Um, so right now you have another generation for sure of um, madams. And perhaps you could elaborate a bit on how how does this organize? So mm. how are the girls actually being moved from Nigeria, yes. and what role, like w what mechanisms of bondage, do people use to actually keep them in the place? 
Yes, uh, it, that's a very important question. So first of all, the um, so the traffickers usually recruit uh, the girls that are, you know, like they have a very specific type of, of girl that gets trafficked. Um, and they are young women who come from Benin City or the area around Benin City, uh, the villages uh, around Benin City. And they are they come very often from very poor families, sometimes from um, households where they only have one parent uh, and uh, where sometimes they are the oldest. And so they need to provide for the younger um, siblings. The protagonist of my piece has four younger brothers and her mom was a widow. Um, my Susan, the, the, my protagonist, she, her dad had passed a year and a half before she, she was trafficked. So the traffickers knew that she needed money uh, to survive and to support her family. And then, yes, they, you know, they, there's a, that bondage that seals the pact um, between the, the woman and her trafficker. And, um, because, and this is based, and, and this is extremely effective and effective, and it is based on uh, the victim's belief in voodoo rituals. So, so you know, by sealing that uh, um, with that ritual, uh, basically survivors uh, or actually victims, uh, um, they they this is how traffickers. Uh, um, control their victims uh, because through the voodoo ritual, um, you know, like traffickers threaten th their victims uh, according to the voodoo beliefs. Uh, uh, victims, if they do not pay their debt, then something horrible is going to happen to their families uh, or something horrible is going to happen to them as well. So they have to uh, pay the debt, uh, which is, and, you know, when we talk about debt, it's an inflated cost of the journey uh, that from Nigeria to um, Europe. So it's, it ranges between 25,000 euro and 40,000 euro, which is un unbelievable huge, uh, unbelievably huge amount of money. And um, so there's there's that that for sure connects the and, and plays such a big role. But also that is not the, the only reason why um, victims decide to stay. And why is that? It's interesting because in, 2000, in March 2018, uh, the Oba, um, the second, uh, who is the spiritual leader in um, the Edo state, uh, he um, issued a decree saying that uh, death bondages were no longer valid. So he freed all the victims of sex trafficking. And that was actually a political uh, move to kind of crack down on human trafficking uh, from that area to uh, Europe. So what happened next was that he's, um, the, the ceremony where he gave his speech uh, was recorded and it was put on YouTube and thousands of 
victims um, saw that uh, uh, video, and uh, 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 and you know, it, it's really hard to count. So we don't know how many women actually left uh, drug traffickers, but a number of women um, decided to leave because they were no longer um, entrapped by the debt bondage. But it's interesting and very telling also to remind to remember that a lot of women actually decided to stay. And the reason why they decided to stay is there it's many reasons. So first of all, these women come from very poor backgrounds, very poor families. Very often they are the only source of income for their families back home. Um, so they need to support their families back home and leaving would mean to deprive their families of uh, financial support. Uh, second, they are very afraid of their traffickers. They, you know, like tra- their traffickers have people in Nigeria. Um, and uh, it's happened very often that uh, when a victim decides to escape, the family back home receives a visit from um, someone that has been sent by the trafficker. And some families have been threatened, others have been, family members have been beaten up. Um, In some cases, some family members have been killed. So the stakes are really, really high. Um, At the same time, and this is also important to remember, the victims are in Europe, but they do not speak the language. They do not have any regular papers. They are really afraid of getting deported and they're really afraid of the authorities. Um, so that um, constitutes uh, the ideal uh, conditions uh, for them, uh, for traffickers to keep them uh, with them. It's it's almost as if the the traffickers have created a, a sick system in which the the families become to depend on their yes. daughters or their family members. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yes, and it's really interesting that. Yeah, it's really interesting that you're mentioning that because uh, this is the saddest part, but um, very often the families know that it's the families that decide to offer uh, their child uh, to traffickers um, because, and this has been researched by the University of um, Benin City, um uh very often you know the human trafficking has become a widespread uh, survival strategy in that area of Nigeria and that gives you an idea of the level of deprivation and poverty um that pushes a family to basically give up their child and say, okay, you're gonna, we have to sacrifice you basically. And sorry, if I could just follow up on that. Mm-hmm. So it, does that mean that, so from the the revenue that you get from the forced prostitution, yeah. there's, I guess, a minimal part that goes to the families and then a part that goes to the madams and then a part that yeah. I assume that this is then, that most of the profits go to an organized crime group that is, 
coordinating all of this or how how does it work that's such a good question okay so what from what we know um we know that the madams uh control everything they they have full control over their victims lives uh they of course provide the victims uh, with uh, food, uh, shelter, um, and uh, clothes. Uh, and sometimes they also give them a tiny, um, let's say, percentage of their earnings that they give them back to the, the victims. And uh, and that is supposed to go to their families back home, right? But, for example, in Susan's case... Uh, she the, what really triggered her to leave was the real the realization that she was living this life of uh, violence and uh, slavery and she was only able to send back home only a few euros like a hundred euro or something like that a month and she even less at times. And so that for her was the point of no return. That was, was what made her realize that she needed to leave, that it was not worth it, basically. And then Susan case was really, I mean, listening to to you explaining how everything is organized, it's, it's pretty hard to understand how an authority who learns from this kind of things happening in their yeah. city doesn't make it a number one priority in combating and what really struck me when reading your, your article was that Susan had such a hard time making a case out of it. It took several years and she was actually documenting a lot of things that happening, providing phone numbers. Yeah. And even then it took incredibly long, even though the result was um, satisfying in the end, but, but still a landmark and yeah. pretty uh, individual case. So, so why is that? What, what's the issue yeah. with prosecuting? There are several issues. So first of all, um, human trafficking cases are very complex because you have to, very often you have um, criminals in different jurisdictions. Um, so it's relatively easy, but but still very difficult to get to the madam. But it's incredibly hard to get to the middleman. So the people that helped the madam organize uh, the journey from Nigeria to Europe. Um, and it's also inc incredibly difficult to uncover whether, you know, the madam has other connections. And very often that is the case in other European countries. Um, secondly, the, the human trafficking investigations are also very complex and they require incredible an incredible amount of resources but also very precise skills you have to have the prosecutors and the investigators that know how to do this kind of investigations they need to know what to look for so for sure there's also um skill uh let's say um aspect to it that not every investigator has um and then there are also logistic logistical issues. So, for example, in in this case, in this um, in Susan's case, for example, she it was really hard for the prosecutors to 
find translators, right? Because they, they had hours and hours, hundreds of hours of wiretappings. Um, and they needed to find a translator that could um, translate from that specific um, Nigerian state uh, language into um, Italian. So you need to have prosecutors who are really determined and who are really um, focused on the case and who really want to bring these traffickers to justice. Unfortunately, while, you know, for this piece, I've interviewed a high number of aid workers and also police officers. And what happened, what everybody, nearly everybody told me was that uh, one of the main reasons why the human trafficking is still so hard to be prosecuted as a crime is that there is a lack of interest, um, particularly among prosecutors. And this is mainly because the victims are Black women um, who are also immigrants. Uh, so you have, that is probably among the number one reasons why prosecuting is so hard. Yeah, and um, I think the the last point you made about it being black women and girls, mm-hmm. um, there's also something to be said about the fact that um, white men are willing to um, uh, buy these kind of services when they are fully aware that these are, yeah. are minors in particular. Um, it's it's kind of, I, I I don't know it's a complete personal um, interpretation of it but I, to me it just is so representative of, of yeah. this kind of ingrained racism that we have in us that yeah. somehow it's okay because they are because they are black and we but we wouldn't do it on um, Italian miners for example. So it's it's very interesting. I mean. Italy is a country um, where uh, gender inequality um, is huge uh, still now. It's a huge issue. And where racism is a huge issue. Um, You will see white women, especially white women coming from Eastern Europe in the streets um, of Italy, um, and they are also being trafficked. So that is also the case. Uh, but I do believe that uh, the racial an- uh, element and the gender element play into um, dehumanization um, mechanism that makes it possible for this this white man. Sometimes they are also they're not white. It, it, it is true that sometimes. Um, women are also trafficked from Nigeria to, um, you know, end up in uh, these migrant camps uh, working as prostitutes in in southern Italy. Um, So it's not just white men, but mostly, of course, mostly it's white Italian men. And it's Yes, for sure. The pro, the you know, the gender issue and the racial issue plays a huge role in this process of dehumanization. It's also interesting, though, 
because if you spend a day, and I've done that several times, with human trafficking survivors, uh, actually victims, because they haven't expect, um, escaped yet at that time, in the streets, uh, you will find uh, that the, the profile of the man that stopped by is impossible to, to define. There's a variety of men who stop and become customers. Um, you will see cheap cars, uh, uh, small cars. You will see also the shiniest, uh, most expensive sports car that stops. So it's really impossible to say who the customers are because it's a variety. It's mostly men. This is, we know this. Um, it's also interesting because, you know, humanity is very complex. And it is also true that in some cases, when women are particularly vulnerable at times, it is the customers that help them and that send them to um, aid workers or organizations uh, fighting human trafficking. So, yeah, it's a very complex issue. But for sure, again, the racial element and the gender element are key uh, to making this you know, market possible. And I wonder, is, do you think that's also true for... I mean, I don't want to say supply side since we're talking about um, humans here, but like the origin of, of these humans. I understand that the Edo culture is um, polygamy yeah. is normalized in that culture and is being lived. So I wonder if that might also facilitate the fact that families send their daughters. I, I think so. If, um, so there is also another reason why if you think about it, it's so easy to recruit women uh, and to tell them, you know, like women are usually recruited by saying that they are going to find a better job than the one they have or unemployment that they have in at home. Um, and so they, you know, recruiters or traffickers, they tell them, um, they promise them a good job in, in Europe. And a lot of women, young women say, of course, I will move to Europe. I will do whatever you tell me to do because I'm, you know, suffering here. There is, it is true. I have my family and I know the surroundings, but still I'm in deep poverty. But also another element that exposes those victims to, um, to trafficking. And it is an element that is very often overlooked is the gender based violence rate. So the gender-based violence rate in the Edo state is 52%. And most of the crimes do not um, get reported to the police because, of course, women and, and actually uh, citizens in Nigeria do not trust the police. There's a level high, high level of corruption, high level of violence. So uh, this is another key element that exposes victims to this uh, trafficking ex chain. And to, to add kind of to that complexity of, um, of all of this, that there's also 
the fact that obviously Nigerian um, organized crime groups then have to either compete or cooperate, mm-hmm. I guess, with the Italian mafia. Um, do you would you happen to know how that works? Is it do they have like a license or how how does that um, cooperation mechanism yeah. work? That is so interesting because this is something that I've tried to understand, um, and I have I have to say that the mechanisms are a little bit different, or they look like they are a little bit different from um, according to um, several different regions uh, in Italy. So in the south, uh, prosecutors have actually found that. Uh, um, Nigerian uh, uh, organized crime is very well rooted. There are a lot of men at the home. Uh, it, they belong to this black axe cult. Um, and they manage to work in southern Italy because, because basically from what we understand, the mafia realized that they were not touching a market that they were interested in. So as long as they do not compete, it's okay for the Nigerian organized crime to be there. Um, The level of exchange between the Italian mafia and the Nigerian organized crime is not clear yet. It is also interesting to say, and you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before, that if you talk to prosecutors in other areas uh, of Italy, like in northern Italy, um, the it is not clear yet, uh, or it has not been deeply investigated, or at least made public yet, um, the how how. Um, the, Niger- the so-called Nigerian organized crime. So the crime that, uh, as we said, um, belongs to these uh, cults, to, to these gangs, uh, like the Black Cats, uh, for example, is present in other areas of Italy. And we don't know if that is because they do not have control over the, those areas or they have not been investigated properly yet. Um, so yes, we, we, I think that there, there needs to be a better understanding of how those dynamics, uh, work. And can we then assume that those trafficking cells are essentially based in Italy and manage all the operations from Italy? And then also like, as they're sending um, people abroad, because it's not only an issue in Italy, but other major European yeah. cities as well. So how do they stay in, in touch with, with their victims? So, so first of all, I think it's important to say that the, um, this, so the, we have to make a distinction between really like the, the so-called uh, um, organized, uh, Nigerian organized groups, uh, uh, criminal groups, uh, like, as we said, the Black Hacks, for example, um, and the Madams, right? So in some areas of Italy, it has been reported that they are connected. 
But in some other areas, especially in northern Italy, um, those connections are not always clear. So what happens is that uh, you, you know, for example, in Susan's case, uh, only the madams were prosecuted. Um, it looked like from the investigations that, and from the um, the reports that I saw, that they were actually controlling everything. Um, so they did not have anybody else on top. But I wonder, since this is uh, is something that has been found somewhere else, whether you know there are other examples of in in the north in northern Italy of. Um, mostly male um, organized groups that are controlling the madams as well. This is something that I think needs to be uh, looked into more. Also, it's interesting that um, what has been reported from, what I've been told from uh, aid workers uh, since in the past three years uh, is that a lot of women uh, from Nigeria are controlled more and more by men. So, you know, that is an interesting change of pattern. So you don't have the madam anymore, but you have a man. And so that makes me think, okay, is that man working alone or are they? is he part of a network? For sure, he's part of some kind, like he's connected to other people because he has to have middlemen in Libya, in Niger, and in Nigeria. But at the same time, is he part of one of these groups? We don't know. Um, so I don't know about that. And I don't remember if you asked me something else as well. Um, how do they stay in touch with the victims if they send off to other cities? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because if they send, if they are sent off other cities, they're always... Um, another madam that controls the victim like victims are never left alone um they, they always have someone that, con that has control over them uh so they're never free uh basically even susan at some point susan uh, got transferred to another madam because susan was um very um She, she, she was a little bit of a rebel and she would not comply uh, with what uh, the, the madam said. And so the madam was afraid that she would create problems. So she, she moved her um, to another city uh, in Northern Italy. And um, at that point, uh, she had in that other city, Susan had another madam that uh, had, she had to report to. Um, but the money that Susan made, a part of the money that Susan made was still sent to the person, the trafficker so the, that had brought her to Italy. And so whilst we're on the, the topic of organization of how all of this works, um, how does it, how are the girls or the women how is their journey organized from Nigeria to Italy? So if I've understood correctly, most of these women or girls arrive undocumented. Yeah. Um, and is it the person based in Italy that organizes their, their whole trip? Because one thing that 
I find particularly shocking with this um, human trafficking network is the level of brutality and sexual violence yeah. that happens along that journey. And it, it's hard to understand why that is necessary, I guess. Yeah. And who is, is someone else profiting from that journey? Yes. Um, so it's interesting because in Susan's case, it was the madam that was already in Italy and she had regular documents so she could travel. And so the madam traveled to the Edo state where, uh, and Ben and Stevie were, were a village near in, in the surroundings of um, Benin City where Susan was from. And that's how she recruited Susan. But in other cases, you have different, like madams in Italy or in Europe have different recruiters in the other state. So the recruiters in the other state can be women or men. And they have their duty is to their job is to basically convince the girl to um, move to Italy. Um, and of course, so you have the recruiters who profit from it. Um, then the journey is usually starts in Benin City, of course. And by bus, women usually travel to Agadez in Niger. And from Agadez, they get on pickup trucks uh, to Libya. And in Agadez, what happens is that the most grueling, um, most difficult part of the journey, well, one of the most difficult parts of the journey starts because they have to cross the Sahara Desert. And a lot of it's it's basically the same journey that migrants from some sub-Saharan Africa who try to reach Europe uh, um, undertake. And a lot of people die in the desert. Um, for women, it is particularly tough because there have been reports of um, women who got their period during the, the journey throughout, through the desert. And because having uh, your period is considered bad luck, um, in some cases they have been abandoned in the desert. So, and they died, of course. Um, and once they reach Libya, at that point, they are moved to different cities until they reach the coast, so northern Libya. And on, on the coast, they are usually locked up in detention centers slash jails. And at that point, that is where they wait. Together with other migrants, they wait their turn to get on uh, the boat, the usually dinghies, to Europe. And of course, we know that the rate of Mediterranean um, death is incredibly high. So that journey, um, the Mediterranean crossing is also incredibly difficult. What is important to say is that the traffickers in Italy control every single stop um, of the journey. 
like every single leg of the journey is controlled by traffickers in Italy. They, um, in Susan's case, for example, uh, she told me that uh, basically the, the, the madam had told her who to look for once they, when she was in, you know, in, in Agadez and then in Libya. And in Libya, the, the, the middlemen were in direct contact with the madam. Like the madam would phone them. So it was incredibly well organized. The madam would phone um, Susan's jailers on it, like in the detention center where she was uh, on the Libyan coast. And she would tell the jailers to tell Susan that um, to, just to be patient and that uh, she would have to wait for the weather to improve so that she could make the, the crossing. So she, the, the madam was completely, you know, in control of the entire journey. It was like, yeah, it was like, uh, uh, it's terrible, but it, it's... It, she was basically just a commodity that needed to be moved from one place to the next. And she had no control over her journey uh, because in, in, in the detention center, she was actually locked up with other migrants. So she had no way of leaving if she wanted to. Um, she was there for two weeks uh, in the conditions of the jail was, were horrible. Um, Yes. So I hope I answered to that. Absolutely. And um, Susan being one of the few who gets to survive these atrocities and making it out of it while at the same time serving justice to her traffickers. I wonder how does her future look like now? Are you, are you mm. still in touch with her? Have you like, is there any way she can stay in Europe? Yes, uh, the good thing, and that is my, uh, I mean, a, a big source of joy is that uh, she, after the piece came out, uh, she um, managed to get her permanent um, permit. So, so she actually got a refugee status in Italy. Um, so she's fine for now, and she finally can look for a job. But she had to wait for four years to get her refugee status. So it's been incredible, incredibly hard for her. And it is still incredibly hard for survivors of human trafficking. Like the, there are ways for them to be, you know, to, to be safe uh, once they are, they escape. There are legal ways for them to have access to, legal documents and be able to rebuild a life in Europe. At the same time, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of risks um, and, and a, a lot of time as well. Um, and not everybody has that. And also like a great, uh, um, how can I say, determination and strength because if you think about the level of trauma that Susan and the other uh, trafficking victims uh, experience 
is atrocious. I don't even know how to begin to describe it. But if you think that you are deceived, because most most women, especially most young girls, do not know that they will be forced to work um, in the streets. Uh, um, they are not sex workers uh, that are willingly, you know, doing that kind of work. They are really slaves. And the level of deception, you trust someone who tells that they're going to find a good job for you in another country. And you, you realize that that is not the case and that you will be forced to work in the streets. And the streets are ugly. Like anything can happen in the streets. Women get raped uh, by customers, by sometimes officers. Um, it, it's ugly. And to survive all that and, and then to survive the journey throughout the desert, the journey throughout the Mediterranean, the permanence in Libya, and then finding the strength to really say, okay, I need to leave. And I'm in a country that I don't know. And people do not even speak my language. And then go to the police and report. It, 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 it's just, uh, I don't know. It shows just the strength of, of Susan. But it, it's also easy to understand why a lot of people do not have that kind of strength so and one last question yes. if i may usually we we try to end these kind of episodes outlining what yeah potentially what listeners could do if anything and i guess it's incredibly difficult in when talking about this topic but is there anything that could be done uh, from from the perspective of our listeners for example yeah i it, well You know, I think there's a, a number of things that we can do. Um, so first of all, um, trafficking victims are really difficult to identify, or let's say that authorities have a really hard time identifying trafficking victims because they're, you know, um, they assume they're just immigrants uh, just of course in quotes you know and so they're not uh, being trafficked so for officers if i don't know if a police officer listens to this uh, or an immigration officer listens to this of course they have there's a lot that they can do because trying to really understand the status of the person and whether this person is vulnerable so for them there's that Uh, for men who are um, customers, uh, it's also really, it's actually really easy to understand that a lot, I mean, most 80% of the women that have arrived to Europe from 2015 to now um, have been trafficked. And we're talking about uh, at, at least 21,000 women from Nigeria, like that arrived to Europe from Nigeria. So, Sorry, did you say 80%? Yeah. 80% of those women have, according to the International Organization for Migration, have been trafficked. So they are not willingly working as sex workers. They are forced to do it. So if, you know, for customers, 
it is, I mean, they have the power to help uh, if they, if these women want to be helped, of course, because you don't want any major rescue operation that could put the women in danger uh, more than they already are. But to be mindful when, you know, when they stop in the streets, uh, to be kind, to be, um, to help, basically, and maybe not take advantage of what uh, you see in front of you, of the person that you see in front of you. And for everybody else, I think that getting informed is incredibly powerful and it's such a good, you know, such a good way to, such a powerful tool and to really ask uh, our governments to provide more um, legal resources and for this girls for survivors to remain in our countries once they report their traffickers when they escape because it would be really really hard for them i mean it would be very uh, dangerous for them to be forced to um, move back to to nigeria um after they have escaped and other than that look for um anti-trafficking organizations in in your country and um maybe make a donation or volunteer there's uh in italy for example there are organizations that work uh really well with survivors uh, and victims uh, and need volunteers it's not an easy kind of volunteering work um, but if you feel, so it's not for everybody, but if you feel that you have the resources and, you know, the, mo- I mean, practical resources, but also mental resources to do this, that could be helpful as well. Otavia, thank you so much for these final remarks. Unfortunately, this is all we had time for today. Thanks a lot for doing this with us. It was incredibly insightful and yeah, good luck on your next endeavor. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope you have enjoyed it. To find out more about this topic, please check our show notes for the sources and references. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and we hope you tune in for the next episode as well. Bye-bye.